One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And this is the Menkind Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests. You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore. Good morning. Happy Monday. It's Michael here. Mark's there. And I think Mark's more upbeat this week. Uh, Yes, I'm pretty well. Thank you, Michael. Yes, things have been all right. Pretty and well. Yes, you are. Our listeners can't see this, but you've got a lovely flower in your hair as a Zoom filter, which is lovely for me. It would be stretching a point to call me pretty in normal circumstances, but with this grafted on Zoom accessory, which is a sort of large flower of some kind. I think it's a a blue hydrangea. You said that with a... Quite a bit of confidence for someone that's not a botanist, Michael, and I enjoy that. There are many sides to me that you don't know. Anyway, we'd like to say a massive welcome to our new patrons. Got the word right, finally. We have Martin and Charlie joining our merry gang over on Patreon, which is lovely. Yeah, Charles Martin, incidentally, was the name of the headmaster at my old school, but that's a coincidence. And uh, those people become the latest two lucky guys, or however they identify, to witness the absolute torrent of rubbish that we put onto our patron. That could be you if you're not already signed up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I call it a torrent of rubbish, but anyway, moving swiftly on, we actually have managed to get Lane Rogers. You didn't think we were going to get him, but we have. Hi. We'd like to ask guests to uh, describe, well, who they are, how they see themselves, how they normally like to be described, basically. Oh, in, in your case, it's as part dog. <laughs> it's fine, we've had dogs before. <laughs> Yes, quite some storyline this. We spoke to Lane Rogers, it went wrong, just as a recap in case you weren't listening. Uh, then he called again, and this time it went right. And thanks to Leanne's ingenuity, it has all been stitched together into, uh, well, it's obviously two different conversations, but we really enjoyed, didn't we? Yeah, it was really great actually to have a bit of a gap in between where we kind of thought, oh, actually, I'd like to ask on all these things that we kind of sometimes might not get to if we were recording at all in a one So we think it's a great one. Yes, it makes you think that perhaps the podcast would be better if we sort of put more thought into it, doesn't it? But there oh. we are. We can't start having thoughts like that. What a good way to start the podcast. We're just going to have a quick <laughs> think about our mortality and... Uh... About whether we prepare properly <laughs> for our work. Anyway, this was, as we've said, this was a tough one to get to work logistically and we're proud of it. Please enjoy Lane Rogers. So we're joined today by, all the way from the United States of America, Lane Rogers. Hi, Lane. Hi. We'd like to ask guests to uh, describe, well, who they are, how they see themselves. So, uh, Lane, how do you like to describe yourself to someone that uh, maybe doesn't know your your work? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I am a multifaceted person, I would say. I started my journey many years ago as a simple restaurant worker. And uh, (laughs) then... uh, Through an interesting series of events, I ended up in the porn industry where I became extremely successful and still work in today in a different kind of capacity. 
and also try and explore other forms of media that I can be in. So I go live on Twitch where I play video games and I make YouTube videos. And so I guess I could best be described as a content creator. There you go. The oldest uh, story in the book, from restaurants to porn. <laughs> <laughs> Happens to everybody. <laughs> Beware if you're listening and you work in a restaurant. Yeah, right. <laughs> Get out of there quick. <laughs> it turns so fast. <laughs> So our first question that we always ask everybody, which we'll go straight into, is when do you remember first realising that masculinity kind of existed as a concept? When do you remember kind of your first brush with masculinity? Whoa. <laughs> yeah, we're going straight in, Lane. My first brush with masculinity. Oh, gosh. You know, I think I would have to say probably really when it really, really hit me was my freshman year of high school, right. which I'm not sure how you guys caught over there. I think we know what freshman year is because of American TV shows. Yeah. We've all watched so much American school stuff that we basically, <laughs> would, yeah. Right. We've all seen Riverdale, so we know. So I went to a school here in Lexington that didn't have a lot of athletics. There's no American football. There was no high school basketball program and I was going there. And my freshman year, I went to a boarding school that did have a lot of athletics. They were state champions. And so that was the first year I like played football and it was an all boys school. So I was surrounded by, by men and um, really immersed in that sort of masculine feeling for the very first time. <laughs> they changed this later. But their motto at the time was boys will be boys. Oh, which yeah. <laughs> at the time it was like it wasn't thought of as like a problematic phrase yet. And shortly after I went to that school, you know, a couple of years later, that drastically changed. And so they've since changed it to something about like the future is bright or something like that. You know what I mean? Something a little bit more vague, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> boys will be boys, except some of them might not be. Yes, yes. <laughs> Even aside from the problematic, that is strikes me as quite a funny kind of motto for a school because certainly in this country it's what you'd say if someone had, like a kid had broken something or done something or they've messed up you're yeah. like oh well boys, yeah, well, boys. boys, boys. it basically sounds like the, the school is saying a lot of stuff goes wrong here <laughs> but what can you do they're boys yeah I think that was kind of uh, a bit of the idea in a way is that yeah. like hey they're, like, they're boys and they're going to mess up and they're going to learn to become men here right oh, so it's quite nice in that spirit if you, just yeah. perhaps yeah a bit misguided in terms of wording with, yeah how did masculinity present itself within that environment yeah well I just realised because I grew up with an absent father for the most part and didn't really have that very solid male role model to experience masculinity through. So when I went to the school, I suddenly was just very like surrounded by it. A boarding school like that is its own kingdom, basically. You're physically isolated from, in all ways, yeah. isolated from all of the society. That's one of the fascinating yeah. things to me about, I can't, I didn't go to a single sex school. I can't quite imagine living in a tiny shrunk down world where everyone is a man, essentially. Yeah, yeah essentially, except for like, a few administrators and, and such for females and a few teachers. But for the most part, yeah, it was 300 acres in the North Carolina woods. And so, you know, there were trails and everything. It was, it was like its own mini world. I mean, we had a store and, and everything. And it was very interesting because it was also my first foray into like independence mm. of being able to like, oh, I wake up, I make my bed, I go to the breakfast hall, and then I have to go do my chores and then I have to go to class and, you know, like having this set of responsibilities that are like on me and that those consequences come back to me. Mm. You know what I mean? But quite a formative experience to be having in an almost entirely male dominated environment. Yeah, I was going to ask, although it's maybe not easy to know, but what do you think the long term effects were of spending that formative time in such a masculine environment? So, yeah, for me, it was the first time that I had seen 
positive male role models, you know. But what was really strange is the way that I was actually being pulled in the opposite direction that year, that freshman year. I'd always been very close to my mother. I'm her youngest child, and we'd always just had a very, very close relationship. And three days before I left for boarding school, actually, she announced to my siblings and I that she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Right, right. So quite literally, I mean, like this very strong feminine energy was like pulling me back, you know? So I actually only did my freshman year there. And then I decided to come back because I wasn't sure at the end of the first year if my mom was going to be okay. Uh Thankfully, she was, and she's now had over 10 years in remission. So I've never felt so like pulled in separate directions where having never had that positive masculine figure in my life, really, being able to finally have that for the first time and the independence that I kind of always wanted, while at the same time having this person that has always been here for me, not being able to be there for her was just pulling me apart. I mean, it was really tearing me to bits. Uh, that's a lot to deal with, yeah. You mentioned earlier that you weren't out at the time. What was yeah. what was the process of kind of learning how you identified like for you when you were younger? To this point, I had only met two gay people, at least openly gay people that I knew of my entire life, you know, in a place like Kentucky, where a lot of kids don't get this example of like a positive LGBT role model or role models But there was a gay couple, they were not married, but they each had kids from their marriages with with women and were no longer with them, but were together. And they were this gay couple that actually went to our church and were accepted and part of that community. And so uh, I was able to see and and kind of witness like, oh, they just like everybody else kind of thing. This can be done. Yeah. Yeah. But after that, I'd never met anybody my age. So that sophomore year, I started meeting this immensely diverse group of people. And I met the first person my age who was out. And I basically outed myself the first time I met him because I was like, he told me he was gay. And I was like, you're gay? And you tell people? What's that like? (laughs) Which is a pretty, that's a strong indicator, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So I was just so interested. I was like, what is this experience like for you? And this is, again, in a small town in Kentucky. And it was not easy for him. But I decided to trust this person and tell them that I'm bisexual. But I didn't want to, like, date this person. I just kind of wanted to see what the experience of being an LGBT person was, you know. And he became upset that I didn't want to to date him or come out. My plan was to come out in, in college. So he walked down the hallways of this school and just outed me, basically, uh-huh. in his spite. And wow. uh, that radically changed everything because it was the first time that my experience with other people was shifted. Yeah. I noticed people treated me differently. And I, there's this thing among youth, and this is how you know we should be educating people on LGBT issues much younger because what happens is other people around, other kids around, basically end up coming to the few out LGBT people and we become like the beacons you know, of like, oh, what's this like? What's this like? And it's like, yeah, buddy, I'm 16 like you are. I don't fucking know. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I don't know shit. Yeah. <laughs> so it was this weird, like almost responsibility that came down with it of like, now you represent this group. Mm. Again, a lot of responsibility on young shoulders. <laughs> and like, I think something that's probably, I'm making an assumption here, but I know that a lot of the time, there's the biphobia is present from within the LGBT community as well as from without, and especially for young people who haven't necessarily encountered it before or understand it fully. So when you're saying I'm bi, which means I also like men, did people accept that at that school or was the assumption that you just were gay? Yes, that was the big thing, 
right? Is that like, oh, you're gay and you're just kind of like halfway out the closet kind of thing. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I felt myself constantly having to prove that in right. a way, yeah. you know, by, you know, having relationships with girls that maybe I didn't even want. And but at the same time, that was like affirming for me because I knew I was still physically attracted to them. You know, I was just like, I don't really want this relationship, but I have this need to like prove this thing to people, you know. Biphobia is not something that we've talked about that much. Not and at all. It's no. not something that as a straight cis guy have thought about much in my life, really. But just quite recently, I was reading a blog by someone who said that it was one of the most prevalent forms of, you know, within the, we've talked about the tensions within the queer community. Why is that? Is it because it, some areas of the gay community see it as like a cop-out or not real or... So I've thought quite deeply about why it is that both straight people and people within the LGBT community have this immense issue, basically really just understanding bisexuality. Mm. And I think it's because in this very binary world we live in, and trans people experience the same thing, you know, of like, you don't fit into one of these two boxes that I know and understand Mm -hmm. already. And like, now you're telling me basically there's a third box I've been raised to believe that people are gay or straight or male or female. So when people are bi or when people are trans, that interrupts the entire thought process of what people have been raised Uh to believe is is like... There's another thing again now? Yeah. It's just a little bit more mental effort, basically. Yes, and that's what it is. So a lot of people have just trouble understanding that. And I suppose if you jump to now, I mean, you are in a same-sex relationship now, and a really big part of biphobia is kind of being like, oh, now you've chosen. You've settled down and you've chosen. Have you experienced that? Yes. I hate that I have this fear, but I do, of like, if I end up marrying my current boyfriend and everything, it's like, wait, does that does that mean I'm like set in stone that's like yeah. gay at that point? Or if I end up marrying a woman, is, does that set in stone that I'm now straight and like, now that's chosen kind of thing, like yeah. especially when it comes to marriage. I feel bad now that we we decided we'd ask Lane to definitely commit to a future spouse on this podcast, but that, yeah. that is just, <laughs> it is exciting for us. I think it's really interesting because we don't often hear bisexual voices yeah. anywhere, really, and I think it's really important that people see bisexuality out there and in the mainstream. We need to be educating kids at, at these younger ages of what LGBT means and that the responsibility of that education should fall on adults and the adults around us. It is interesting. I don't think that my son, who is 11, my children know about gay people for sure, but I don't know if they would know what bisexuality is. It does feel like it's a bit of the overall messaging that just goes missing. It's because it's scary. So you moved into the adult entertainment industry, which is a really fascinating area. And I know you've written and spoken quite a lot about the objectification within that industry. But what interests me is the move there. What took you there? What made you go, ah, that's an industry I'd like to be part of, at least for a short while? Oh, gosh. This is a story. (laughs) Oh, here we go. Strap in, everybody. All of that happening, you know, my mom having cancer and coming back from what I was supposed to be kind of my formative growing experience. I had a really hard time with that. And I was like, this is not how my life was supposed to end up. Like, what's going on here? So I have to have this radical shift of like, what the fuck am I going to do? I mean, you know, and then I was actually homeless for a period of time. And that ended up being a very formative experience. And so my father, who was largely absent, but kind of would swoop in at these critical moments (laughs) and then disappear again yeah he introduced me to this older gay couple who was the second really good lgbtq example in my life 
So I started living with them. Their names were Bill and, and John. I still know them to this day. And they really kicked my butt into gear and made me get my driver's license, which, you know, there were all these like accomplishments that I felt I had suddenly failed to do. Again, yeah. this thing of the gap between what you thought your life was going to consist of and what yes. you were actually staring yes. at at this they point. They were explaining yeah. to me that like, even in a place like Kentucky, you can be yourself and, and be successful and, and it's okay. And, and kind of giving me permission in a way. But my friend took me to this restaurant here in Lexington that I have, still have a great fondness for called Tolly Ho. And it's a, like a 24-hour diner place. It was like opening the Holy Grail in Indiana Jones or something when I went in there for the first time at like two in the morning. It's popping in there. There's so much energy and life. I knew from the first moment I went in there, I was like, I'm going to work here, period. And that was the first time I sort of got a wave of confidence back of like, I'm going to make this a goal. I'm going to work at this restaurant, which for a lot of people was like not a lofty goal, but for me, it felt at the time. But they lived six miles from the restaurant. And while I had my license, I didn't have a car. So I would literally, even in the wintertime, and this is really what like I think toughened me and gave me Teflon. I had to walk six miles to work and six miles back, no matter the weather. That's a good test of whether you really do want the job as much as you said. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> so it took me three hours to walk to work. I'd have to bring a separate change of clothes because even when it was cold, I would sweat so much going to work. If I was lucky, I would get a ride home. There were more people who could give me a ride home than a ride to work. So I'm working at Tally Ho and it's three in the morning in Lexington, Kentucky, which is not a very large city. And I am, as many young men in our positions, on Grinder. <laughs> yeah, many young men in our positions is a very polite way of saying. Maybe not you, Mark, but yeah, I am aware of Grinder. <laughs> so eventually, I, I find this guy on there, and he's a college guy, and he's always up when I'm getting off work. So we're chatting a lot when I'm at work, and I've gone to his house, and we end up, you know, passing out. Nothing happens between us or anything. And then in the morning, we get woken up because these three girls come bursting into the room. They're topless and just wearing underwear, like just wearing panties. And they come bursting into the room and they're screaming and jumping around, like holding hands in a circle, like, and screaming about how much money they made the night before. And I was just like, so what do you guys do for a living? Are you guys strippers? And they were like, we're virtual strippers. Uh -huh. And they were cam girls, if you know what that is. Yeah, instant from Michael. <laughs> <laughs> for those who might not know. Right? Yeah, for those who might not know, cam girls are people who offer uh, sexual acts via camera for uh, an agreed upon price kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like a stripper, basically. You know, they tell me about this and I, it was just kind of a light bulb over my head moment where I was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that as like an option before. Yeah, most people haven't probably. Yeah. But, you know, when you get the whole perspective of, like, I pictured my life to turn out one way. It's not turning out that way. Yeah. And I don't see a lot of avenues for traditional success. So I, I put together in my head pretty quickly. I was like, well, I know what I was born with. I could probably do that shit. Yeah. But I didn't have a computer or nothing. So I keep hanging out with Ben Moore and going over to their house and seeing them do these cam shows. And, and I just kind of started, like, selling this guy on the idea that, like, hey, like, we should do this. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you have a computer, you have a place where we can do this comfortably. And yeah. like, we both need some money, you want to pay for college. And I just want to stop working for minimum wage. <laughs> and uh, so one night, we finally decided to do it. This is February 9th of 2014. I remember the day I got off of work. So I went to his house, showered and got ready. And we created an account together and did our first cam show on a website called Chatterbait. And, and 
it went phenomenally well. <laughs> Phenomenal. We crashed the website. It, it, we had so many people come into our room at one time. And it was the first time that I'd had such a, people were so nice. Mm. All the users are like, oh, you look so good, you're this and that. So it's just very positive attention. And so we start making, for me at the time, a killer. I mean, like blowing what I'm making at the diner out of the water, right? Yeah, yeah. Eventually, he didn't want to do it anymore. But by that point, I'd gotten my own computer thinking that like, I don't know how this is going to work out with him. So I started doing it just on my own. And then it really took off. So once that happened, it's probably summer of 2014. I did the first one in February. Doing it for a couple months. And then probably June or July was the first time that a studio reached out to me and asked if I would do a scene, a professional scene. And I said, you know, like, mm, I don't think I need to do that. That's a little too much exposure for me. Like, I think I'll stick with this webcam stuff. And by too much exposure, what do you mean by that? Well, when you're doing the webcam thing, or even now with OnlyFans today, you have control of the content. Yeah. yeah. You know, if I want to close that profile and never do it again, I can do that and fade into obscurity kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, a studio makes it all bigger and more real and yeah. less flexible. Once the scene's out, it's out. Right. And, yeah, and, they own it. Yeah, they own it forever. So I said no. And what happened was I started to get a little scared because as I was doing this cam stuff, it started to fluctuate. So I'd have a good month and then a really bad month. And so by like September, October, I was like, maybe I could do this. Like, and you know what it was? It was actually Bill of Bill and John who was like, "Hey man, you're young. You got plenty of life ahead of you. You're stuck here in Kentucky." So he gave me permission to sort of take this leap again. And this is, you know, kind of my second big leap in this recent time of finding myself. And so I did it. It feels like one of the running themes of the story is at key moments, certain men appearing in your path and just giving you a nudge the right way. Giving you the confidence almost to kind of go, I'm going to try this out. Because it's quite a huge leap, I suppose, in terms of going from essentially an online chat room, moving across to a, a professional studio where your face and body will be out there forever, you know? And that's a huge, a huge jump. And yeah, and it felt like it. Yeah. And how did you get the confidence? Was it, was it simply from those... That permission was so critical. Like, right. hey, like, if you do this... I'm not going to like stop loving you or abandon you. Like I'm, I'm going to support you. That was really critical, mm. you know. It's a very objectifying industry, right? It, it, that's kind of what it's there for is that you're there to be looked at. and That's its job. Therefore, there must be a lot of pressure in terms of looking a certain way. Of course. Did you ever feel that? Or did you compare yourself to the other actors that are out there? Like how do you negotiate that world where everything is so objectifying and based on your physical appearance rather than I suppose what's going on in your head. So fortunately, because of the webcam thing and that online community that I had built, that sort of mini fandom had helped me rebuild my confidence that I had lost. So kind of empowering in a way. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I went to do a studio scene, I felt like I can do this. Which you might not have felt if you had said yes to that original studio offer, you would have been much more vulnerable by the sound of it. Yes. So November of 2014, I flew to San Diego, California, and did my very first scene, which was a total failure. It was horrible. It was horrible. And it was the first time that I'd like taken the scene and it kind of like didn't. Oh, we lost you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, as you'll know, we started speaking to Lane Rogers. In fact, more than started, we had quite a good chat, and then everything went to hell because of the difficulties of connecting online via Kentucky. There were loads of audio problems, and that was several weeks ago. Yeah. And we're very lucky and pleased that we have Lane Rogers. Back again now for what will be the second instalment of this show. And we're hoping the last, although I guess if this still doesn't work out, then maybe we just meet up every week until we've got an episode. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, guys. Lane Rogers, welcome back. Welcome. Thank, thank you for you, coming thank back you, thank again. Thank you. I was thinking about this so much about how even with the difficulties, we were like, I mean, pioneering, persevering through. So dedicated. <laughs> the vibes were so good. I was like, I want to continue this conversation. I like pioneering and persevering. I'll take that. Yeah, oh, you, know, you were great. I mean, you kept saying really insightful things, which we then immediately had to make you repeat because uh, <laughs> that, that was lovely. But it sounds like there's a hurricane where you are. <laughs> you talked about a studio opportunity that you had. Yeah. It was a story that we were really enjoying just as the technology let us down, yeah. basically, about you struggling to live up to expectations, I think is a British way of putting it. Yeah. When I flew to San Diego for the first time to do my first studio scene. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, it went horribly wrong. Horribly, awfully, terribly wrong. How does it go wrong? Do we dare yeah, ask? Yeah, we do dare <laughs> ask. Yes, we're pioneering and persevering. We do dare ask. Yes. Exactly. That's who we are. Yes. Your penis does not become erect. Yeah, there you go. That, it was yeah. easy in there, Michael. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How does that, like, what do you do? <laughs> it's kind of a fundamental issue, right? Great question. <laughs> yeah, it's what everyone's wondering that's listening. Yeah, because, I mean, you think about every porn you've ever seen that has any sort of male talent in it. Like, if there's no erection, there's no scene. Right. Yeah. Period. Was this gay adult entertainment? This is gay porn, yeah. Yeah, so. it's even more crucial, some might say. Yes, right, because there's only penises, you know? And so... <laughs> you need some dick for that to work, yes. surely. Even as a straight guy can appreciate <laughs> yes, that. Yeah, right? So, like, if that doesn't happen, it's not working. And so, like, you know, I'd gotten an erection on camera before with camming, so, I like, it was confusing to me, my conscious mind why this was not working. I was like, I've performed in front of people before. Yeah. But it was different as soon as they were in the room. And it's still, and they were very lightweight crew, you know? Michael, you've been on a very large television show. There's tons of people running around, right? Yeah. You've done pornos, Michael. Yeah, you've been on television. <laughs> I was actually offered, did I tell you this? I was what? actually no? offered, someone dropped into my DMs and they were like, would you consider making the move? And I was like, I don't think it's for me. <laughs> I don't no, think I no, any no. Near the confidence. You got stressed baking cakes, mate. <laughs> Can <Yeah>. you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the scene, I mean, it's something that's happened to all men in the entire world, but I imagine in that situation it must have felt really kind of terrifying i suppose well they're paying you so there's a new layer yeah this isn't like someone you met at a bar and you've brought home and it's like oh sorry i've had too much to drink it's not going to work out you know yeah. like all of a sudden you're there they've 
you know, paid for my plane ticket, flown me across the country. And they also don't pay you till it's done. So I'm squirming <laughs> in my seat just thinking about someone paying you to cross the country to get an erection, and then you can't. <laughs> and it's like we brought you here for this one specific thing. Yeah. What did you do? I kept trying. I mean, I did not give up. I pioneered and persevered. <laughs> yeah, you pioneer and you persevere. <laughs> it's such a strange feeling. And and like eventually you do have to give up because you don't want to start to like create this interesting relationship between body and mind. Mm. So you're just continuing to like play with your dick and try and get it hard. And I've taken like two or three Viagra's at this point. They're not working because like Jeez. your mind will just still take over. Like a lot yeah. of people think you pop the Viagra, it's done, right? Most of the time, yes. But trust me, your mind will overpower it. And so I'm kind of like overdosing on Viagra a little bit. If you take too much, you, you kind of start to see like my background, like blue and purple lights when you blink <laughs> and like tracers and and it's kind of- it was, Not it everyone was, knows that about Viagra, I yeah. reckon. This sounds like a horrifically stressful environment. You're basically hallucinating- Horrible. Without an erection in a porn studio. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast obviously, you know, is about male behavior and male mentality and stuff like that. So I suppose an interesting question to ask is if this happens to you, and I don't know if it's ever happened, you know, again, but obviously being able to get hard is such a prime function of a man- is there a way you can not take it personally? Do you stay in a professional mindset or in some way does it impact your idea of yourself as a man when in front of loads of people you, inverted commas, failed to do something like that? Mm, you know what? That is a very interesting question. Well, I, it's definitely interesting for me and Michael because we've never tried to get erect in front of an audience. Speak for yourself, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so like that time, of course, like, I mean, these guys are pros. They've done this. It's a twink studio. So they're all like 18 to 20. And so like... As I learned, it was extremely common. Uh -huh. So they were extremely understanding. They know right. it's your first scene. They know you're nervous. They know the stakes are super high. And eventually, I mean, we really gave it the old college try, like 12 hours or so we were there on set. Gosh. 12 hours. Again, if that's a date, after 12 hours, she's gone home. <laughs> or he, or whoever it is. Yeah, even four hours and you're probably not yeah. still trying. <laughs> so, and then he was like, hey, do you want to just go have dinner and we'll come back tomorrow? And I was like, we'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> so you were around lots of different men who are all around the same age. And you were saying actually they were really understanding and really kind of accommodating. I think if you look at the porn world, it's sort of very, it's quite hyper-masculine. Everyone looks stunning and everyone seems really confident. Is that how things are? How did you feel going into that environment as a newcomer? I'm assuming you'd watched porn before and you kind of had seen them on this kind of pedestal, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that raised the stakes in my own mind, right? Yeah. Of like wanting to like live up to that. But what I learned was, and, you know, we came back the next day and it took another six hours. So that's, this is now 18 hours trying to get hard, just to be absolutely clear. What it really was is like I would get hard for a little bit, right? We'd get up, mm. they'd be ready, we'd film a bit. And it would go away and I would stop and we would do it again and we would go, go away. So uh, but the next day it was a little easier and I was a little more relaxed. I got to hang out with them the night before, you know. And By the sound of it, it didn't really give you any hang-ups about your status from a masculinity point of view. No, 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 no. Not from them. A lot of it became internalized for me and came from within. Right, which is also what we're interested in, I think, how you felt. Yeah. When the scene came out, it looked great. That scene's still out there today. I mean, it looks Good. I'm surprised Michael's already not Googling it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but what was the response to that? I mean, so camming, I suppose, is more private, where people go there, they hunt you down. Whereas I suppose going a bit more into the mainstream porn studios, you're suddenly, especially your body, you're being objectified by hundreds of men and women and envies all across the world in one instant. How do people react to it? 
So that had already kind of come up with the webcamming thing because we right. we had these huge audiences and stuff. So it wasn't that big of a shock in that way. When the scene came out, it basically was just like going viral today. You know, like you're making content, you're making content, and then suddenly one thing pops and it kind of goes to a whole nother level. Internally, felt like to me, the stakes were just being raised. You know, previously to that, the way like life had kind of turned out to that point, and I had lowered that bar and those stakes for myself so much. By having the bar on the floor, it was okay if things didn't go well, you know? All of a sudden, I was able to have some expectations of myself, raise that bar and raise those stakes. This is my standard. This is what I live up to. This is who I am. And so that pressure felt good to kind of meet that ideal, I suppose. Yeah. But what is more interesting, the fact that our conversation got cut off and we're picking it up on this day is, so it's been quarantine. There hasn't been a ton of pro stuff being shot anyway. And I've mostly wound down from that. But just to bring this up again, because like having this conversation has given me a, a good bit of perspective on this thing that just happened to me. I just filmed a pro scene for the first time in a long time, boy, girl, girl scene. So me and two girls. And I finally wanted to meet these filmmakers on the you know straight side of the industry that I haven't gotten to really interact with that much. And I met this girl and she introduced me to them and she kind of stuck her neck out for me to get this scene. And, and it happened to me again for the first time in you know, six, seven wow. years. And Which is really bad, but this couldn't be better for the conversation. Serious, serious. Like, that's what I'm saying. How would you say you felt about it compared with six, seven years ago, because you're not new to it anymore. You're not a newcomer now. Well, now the standard I've like raised for myself is really high. And that hasn't happened to me in a long time. Right. So the standard's different. Uh -huh. It was a plummet. I'll tell you the truth. I came home and I damn near had a breakdown. Yeah. I took all my awards off the wall. I wanted to throw them across my apartment and destroy them. I cried. I was so angry at myself. I was so angry at myself for failing in that way that I had created the standard and was not able to live up to it. I mean, I was furious in a way that I, I'm not a very angry person. So it was very unfamiliar feeling to me as well. My face started to get like this like buzzy, fuzzy feeling in it, which was very strange. And I've never yeah. experienced that before. And that's actually when I was like, okay, I can't like lose myself to this. You know, I've, I've let myself feel that emotion let's move on from it but yeah i I, uh, I took all the awards down and i put them in cabinets so i wouldn't look at them i still haven't put them back up i wow yeah and you know it's funny is the day after that scene happened there was a award show the um grabby awards my boyfriend and i actually won an award for our scene together so it was funny i had this like huge failure and then the next day this victory that i was suddenly feeling like i didn't deserve mm. I saw on Twitter there was a bit of a Ferrari recently because oh, you yeah. had done a male-female scene and lots of the gays felt like they owned you. Yeah. And it's really interesting, actually, being a bisexual man acting in gay porn because suddenly there's a, an assumption, perhaps, especially considering you have a same-sex partner. Yeah, I've had for like four years. <laughs> and there's a whole thing in terms of biphobia where people kind of think, oh, well, you're bi until you are in a relationship and then you are whatever you're in the relationship with. Which we talked about a little bit before, yes, didn't we? And this yes. is really interesting to me because I haven't really heard about this much until now. Yes. So moving to male-female porn, did they feel it was additional pressure or did it feel... Yeah, it was definitely an additional pressure because it was right. my first male-female kind of scene. So that I definitely added to it. I was breaking all this down when I was there. like, And I shouldn't yeah. have been thinking about this because that wasn't helping me do my job. Yeah, but... it might have been a contributing factor. Okay. Yeah. But again, it was all internalized because they couldn't have been nicer about it. 
I mean, really couldn't have been nicer about it. The girls were great about it. Going back to the kind of the Ferrari, I suppose, were you expecting? Did you kind of anticipate that to sort yeah, of explode yeah, yeah. the way? So you were. So why is that? And how did that feel? I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure if it's like internalized homophobia, heterophobia, something, something like that, you know? I'm not sure what the what the term would be that would be most accurate. But I'd gotten these messages before when I've said around Pride season, you know, I posted on Instagram that I'm bisexual. Like I've had to delete some Instagram comments already. And so in the years prior to me acknowledging my bisexuality, there's already been a response to that of like people saying that they're disappointed or that they don't like that or that they're going to unfollow because of this negative reaction where it's like, you know, no, you're supposed to be one of us is kind of the mindset. And this is like such an interesting thing about being bisexual is like once you come out as bisexual, you really are in a way in this purgatory between the two communities where it's like straight people by and large, the straight community is like, okay, so you're, you're not one of us, you know, anymore, right? And gay people are, are like, oh yeah, LGBT, but that B is kind of silent. The B and T yeah, are often completely. kind of silent, right? And and we've seen that. Um, so Yeah, you, you talked about this a bit last time. And I do think this is really interesting because obviously from an outsider's point of view, uh, pride is just a massive universal celebration of love of all kinds. The whole point of it is its inclusivity. And it's weird to look a little bit closer up. And I've followed some of the kind of in-house controversies between different areas of the gay community around Pride, but one of the common denominators is it does feel as if bi people are squeezed out of a lot of queer discourse, yeah. which is not something I've given any thought to in the past, really. And do you think it is because of that? Because you don't quite fit with the gay or straight? Is it as simple as that? You're in the middle, you're in purgatory, as you said. Yeah, and this is why I feel very close in a very sort of parallel way to our brothers and sisters in the trans community is that like they kind of experience that in another way too where it's like, okay, well, you're not really one of us anymore, but you're not really one of, right. it's this whole parallel of like, people think in binaries, ones and zeros, A or B. And yeah. That's how people really yeah. think. So you have to be in this team or that team, but you can't be a bit of both. Yes. And it's because I think humans want to categorize. That's how we understand what's a friend, what's a foe, yeah. put everything in its little box so we can understand it. We like simple binaries because in the original times, our survival depended on, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah. Yes. Is it friend or foe? I mean, that's really kind of on a biological caveman brain kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people still do have caveman brains out there. Whereas you love friends and foes and there's not room for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned you had to delete a couple of comments on a post you only put up like a couple of days ago. Yeah. How do you process that? Because that surely must wear away at you somehow. How do you kind of negotiate those feelings? You know, years ago, it felt like, and I, and I think this contributed to my popularity, is that I was very unabashedly bisexual from the beginning. And I was just like, hey, if you don't fucking like that, okay, fuck off. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. And what really gets me through that is all of the people that tell me in other comments that seeing me, whether that helped them be able to come out as bisexual right. and be proud of that and not be afraid. One person I met in person, a, a fan I met in person said, you know, I, I told people forever that I was gay because I knew even though it's going to be hard to be gay, it was going to be easier for people to accept that I was straight or gay than that I was bisexual. And I knew that it would be just question after question forever and people would always never fully be able to understand it or, or at least not for a while and he said that 
seeing all the abuse that I suffered and how I like basically don't give up made him able to think he's like, well, he's getting it on this massive scale. I'm only going to get it on this small scale of the people around me, you know. Just thinking about that, you've been unabashedly open about who you are, which is incredible and must have been difficult even earlier on in your career. Earlier was hard. I don't know how long you've been with your current partner, but how was dating when you are out as a bi man, but there's the gay community thinking that you are gay for them and like all that. How was dating around all of that stuff going on around you? Because you had a very public persona. Yeah, early on it was sort of strange. And um, yeah, wow, that's a good question. Shit. <laughs> that's a good question. Pioneering and persevering through questioning. That's right. Okay, yeah. So what I used to do, which I don't do anymore, is depending on who I was seeing, because I knew actually more gay men than like straight women were probably going to be a little more understanding because of the LGBT thing. And I think there's something in a gay man's mind that says like, oh, I'm supposed to accept him. You know what I mean? Because it's like one of us, right? It's supposed to be in these letters, right? But they're still having some sort of trouble with it. But I knew they were at least trying to understand. And with straight women, I didn't really have that expectation and, and I'd had negative experiences. So I would often sort of not tell them until I'd sort of built some trust. So you were bizarrely closeted as a gay person, which seems a bit back to front. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a weird situation. Yeah. Now what I do is I tell people right up front, male or female, I tell them right up front. Because it's like, if, if this is going to be a problem, I want to know now, so we don't waste each other's time. Mm. But also, it's easier now because I see many more, and it makes me very proud. I see many more open bisexual people online. And I see more people using that hashtag on Instagram, you know, to post their pictures. I see way more of that than I did before. So that makes me feel a little more confident that people are going to be understanding because it makes me feel like they've experienced maybe a bisexual person in their past. I'm not going to be like their first person having to mm. like explain it all to them, uh, which again, feels like a bit of a parallel to the trans experience. Yeah. You mentioned that there was somebody who sort of seen you as a role model. Did you have any role model either then or now that you kind of looked up to and thought, oh, do you know what? I could be more like them. Yeah, this is a question we often ask people. And it's interesting here because as Michael says, you've reflected on the fact that you hopefully are an example to people that might have to tread the same ground as you. So yeah, were there men or, or yeah, people that you, were that for you? Five, six, seven years ago? No, I couldn't name a single celebrity five, six, seven years ago that I knew was bisexual or that was out. But it doesn't need to be a celebrity. It could just be a person in your life. I mean, you lived with a gay couple for a while. And... No, yeah, I didn't know any bisexual people. I felt like I was really? the only bisexual person I knew for a long time. Gosh. It's interesting. In a sense, you literally did not have a role model and that creates a certain type of mental resilience and independence, I guess, yeah. because you're not treading a path at all. You're forging the path. You're pioneering, I suppose, is the word for that. Pioneering and persevering. <laughs> we were talking about that kind of fierce independence you'd sort of fostered and grown through your life. And then you switched from using a pseudonym to using your own name. I did. Nobody's ever done that before. <laughs> I don't think, as far as I've seen, I haven't seen anybody else do that before or since. No. No. So in the first case, where does the pseudonym come from? Oh, uh, why did I choose Blake Mitchell? Well, uh, that's a good question, but I meant why did you use a pseudonym in the first place? Everybody else was. So that was like the standard. Right. And why Blake Mitchell? Why Blake Mitchell? Yeah. So something about it being kind of two first names, you know what I mean? That could also both be last names. Yeah. Is something I wanted to, to pick. And then also I think Blake is just like a hot guy's name. Like it's just like, you know, I can't think of a, a Blake that I know that's not <laughs> 
hot. So like, oh, Quentin, Quentin Blake. Is Quentin Blake a sexy man? A children's illustrator. But see, it's a last name. You know, he's using it as a last uh, name. Yeah, I see. And it's quite hot to be a talented illustrator as well, isn't it, Michael? Yeah. Not to say that Quentin isn't attractive. <laughs> exactly. Obviously, I'm sure Quentin is attractive in his own right. I don't know what he looks like, but I think it's a sexy quality to have illustrated Roald Dahl's books. I'm going to start Googling Blakes, because I want to see if I can find an unattractive Blake. This is a terrible idea. You should. Michael asked the pseudonym question to try and delve into your psyche, and the answer is basically Blake Mitchell just sounds hot, which is perfectly acceptable. Well, it's like a hot boy next door kind of name. Like, and then Mitchell, there was a guy named Mitchell that I knew that was a hot guy next door who I was just like. Your pseudonym was basically just a hybrid of hot people real and imagined a bit like homer simpson calls himself chad sexington i think it is in the episode of the simpsons <laughs> you just went for sex squared yeah <laughs> and we've talked a little bit about the industry that you're in and the you know some of the expectations and pressures and i think what's maybe interesting to people listening who well i was going to say who don't have first-hand experience with that industry and that's basically everyone <laughs> including us <laughs> yeah, i would right. say yet yeah. again. <laughs> how do you think it portrays masculinity and you know maleness and stuff do, do you think it sets expectations because everyone's had the experience of you know not living up to a porn star or, or to a you know paradigm of masculinity that's in the movies and things but do you think that there mm-hmm. are a lot of healthy aspects to it or do you worry that it misrepresents you're talking about the expectations of sex that porn creates yeah exactly yeah i think yes of course it does that's what it's made to do uh-huh And I would also offer the analogy of, I think, action movies set unrealistic expectations of masculinity. Oh, 100%. 100%. By the way, I don't have an opinion on this. I'm not. You're absolutely right. No, no, no. I just think I want the people listening to, like, realize that that's already being pushed on them in these ways that they don't think about. You know, absolutely. And you could say that almost every genre of entertainment, in fact, sets expectations for how we're meant to live our lives, which aren't real. <laughs> yes, male, female, all of it, right? That like, this is how you're supposed to be and da, 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 da. This is what's always confusing to me. People are like, oh, well, you know, you can't make it to another level because, you know, you're an adult actor or whatever. And to me, that's always just been a fallacy because it's like people used to say the same thing about women, about black people in film, about all, all of these categories of people you know yeah when silent movies were the norm people said that no one would ever be successful talking on film at one time yeah Yeah. (laughs) there's always been this like fear from the existing status quo that this new thing won't work so we shouldn't even try it and then as soon as you try it it works out amazingly and so it's this paradox and so in some ways it can be liberating maybe to people to watch it yeah because it well it's also very cool and sort of uh i think a a bit of a, a dream come true that I didn't know that I had of like being able to be, I love that term, paradigm of masculinity, you know, and to me, I don't want to be a paradigm of masculinity that is unhealthy. I want to be a paradigm of masculinity that is healthy, that's promoting a real healthy manner of doing it that isn't toxic, that isn't selfish, but rather is generous. And how does body image fit into that? worldview because i think you're absolutely right the analogy stands for things like action movies because everybody is ripped and looks stunning yeah and he's walking away from an explosion that it's like dude that would kill you like you know what i mean this guy just got shot six times like nobody lives through that yeah you you should have died 10 times so far in this movie (laughs) so the analogy stands but there is this kind of whole thing of body image that porn stars all look in a certain way and what do you think about that how does that fit into kind of how you negotiate your world yeah I struggle with that because it's like, I know what my 
body looks like. I have my own relationship with body dysmorphia from time to time, but by and large, I can look in the mirror and I'm like, I know what I look like. I can see a picture of myself. I know what I look like. And I know that a lot of people maybe don't look like that. And that maybe is affecting them in a negative way. Right. That's not something I want. And so I try to, and I want to try and do this more, like post more of these pictures of what I looked like when I was you know, sharing that studio apartment. And yeah. when my glasses were sort of taped together with this black electrical tape and the stickiness would wear off and I'd have to redo it. You know what I mean? And then <laughs> when things were horrible and I, like, I wasn't muscular, you know, I just... But I think it's interesting considering that you're in, I think it's fair to say, quite an objectifying industry. Do you find that you end up objectifying yourself or does that kind of seep into how you see yourself? Yes. Or Yes, because, and that's where that internalized standard of like, when I couldn't get an erection recently, set me into this entire spiral because I have failed to live up to this standard of masculinity. I mean, right. you know, I mean, you could argue that an erection might be the most masculine thing, that, like in a way, like that's mm. that's hyper, you know. And so it's what I was asking you earlier. Yeah, it feels like a really difficult thing not to take personally. Mm, yes. as a man. and so it's this deep cut that's very, and then you're relating money to it, which is its own thing. Like that's been a really interesting relationship. Which again, I think is fascinating. If you're a man and you're trying to have sex with someone, it's not going well. That is enough of a stress. If someone was also saying, by the way, there's several thousand pounds on the line here, I mean, that definitely, it wouldn't help you get hard, put it that way. It sure fucking would. And especially as you're like, basically, the higher you climb the ladder, mm-hmm. the more you're going to fall when something goes bad. And mm. especially, you know, my first scene, I got paid $900. To, I mean, it felt like a lot then. And it still is a lot of money by any standard. But like, when you really think about it, compared to what I've gotten paid recently, it's like, oh, my gosh, like the stakes were so much lower then, and they felt so high. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? You mentioned about you kind of trying to live this healthy masculinity. And you talked about that. And that, that kind of links directly into the kind of final question we ask on this podcast, which is, if you were to be building a man or a person from scratch, what three values would you embed into them so that they could kind of thrive in this world? Hmm. I think the number one trait that I think I would like in, in masculinity is understanding. I don't think we actually have had understanding before. No, we've had versions of it maybe, but no one's actually used that word, interestingly. I think that willingness to understand things that are not ourselves, that are different from us, that we don't have experience with, that we mm. don't know and understand or don't affect us personally. I think that yeah. is thinking bigger than ourselves in a way that doesn't involve our ego. Mm. You know, Very interesting. Very good. It's a good one. Understanding. I think after that is the opposite of selfishness, selflessness. Mm. I think that's really important. I, again, the, 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 it really leads into it from the first one, that the idea the world is bigger than ourselves yeah. and the world is bigger than, than what we know, what we experience. And as a result, to be very selfless in that situation, I think, assists with your understanding. And I think being understanding helps with your selflessness. Mm. So I think they tie together. And for a third one, mm, gosh, I'm going to say love. Ah. I think there's not enough emotion I think there is actually a lot of emotion built into masculinity that is super suppressed, super misunderstood. And that often we see that manifesting and we see this in regular movies 
very often where because of these male emotions often being suppressed and pushed down and that's not manly and da 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 we see these outbursts of emotion and anger and rage in masculinity that we do now associate with masculinity creating this sort of i think inverted relationship with emotion and masculinity and i think it should be the opposite you know bigger than it's okay for men to cry like bigger than that i think it's it's got to be okay for men to have these emotions not just on these like really deep levels because you see this in like viral videos and stuff where you know an older man is like given a very important gift or something from his kids or whatever it's like oh wow this is the first time we've seen our father cry you know Mm. you have to like really dig deep for a man's emotions yes it has to be a special occasion yeah it has to be a special occasion for a man to be allowed to feel emotions that's exactly right mark i think we got to cut that out i think Mm. we have to you know, the small occasions have to matter too. And I, right. I think that's all in the, the love category for me. Understanding selflessness and love. That's a nice summary. Yeah. Thank you so much for pioneering and persevering all the way through both of these records. This has been amazing. A really lovely way of uh, kind of summing up everything. So thank you so much for joining us, Lane. Where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch, all under the same username, Lane V, as in Vincent Rogers, Lane V Rogers. Yeah, and I go live on Twitch. I I go live on Instagram too, but I post my funny thoughts on Twitter and my randomness. And so it's a little bit of uh, whatever your flavor is. Instagram's probably the more pro-feeling one, you know? (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us and hopefully we'll see you soon if we ever travel across the sea. Yeah, thanks for your patience, Lane. Thank you so much. We got there. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. This has been a really wonderful experience both times. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it. Lane Rogers. Difficult to pin down, but via Kentucky and Los Angeles, eventually we got there. There were some really great conversation topics in that, especially about bisexuality, which I don't think we've covered in such detail before. No, it might be nice if people suggested more by guests for us, actually, because as we discussed there, it isn't that easy to find public faces of bisexuality. And it is possibly something that we're, well, we've not consciously neglected, but it would be interesting to talk to more people anyway. We're always talking to people, aren't we? Oh, what we do is absolutely yammer on back and forth with people yeah i mean you called us a torrent of rubbish and told us that we're yammering on so clearly having a crisis of confidence over there i know i think torrent of rubbish was said affectionately i I mean i think that the sort of people that follow the patron definitely enjoy the sort of content that it is and that's all you can ask for in life to find an audience for whatever you have to offer isn't it and talking of patreons if you would like to see the torrent of rubbish that mark refers to you can join us at patreon.com forward slash Menkind podcast and we are also on all social media at Menkind podcast we've had some lovely messages such as from Mark who listened to the one with Ben not this Mark a different Mark no we're not quite Uh, at the level where we have to write our own fan mail and send it in (laughs) not yet Uh, and Mark said it was a very thoughtful conversation and a discussion of masculinities and education which he really enjoyed and a lovely message as well from Sarah on Twitter who listened to Mossin's episode last week saying it was such a pleasure to listen to a pod full of heart empathy and lols I believe I probably bring the first one you bring the the latter and we probably cross over in the middle with empathy I guess I like to think I've still I've got heart as well I certainly think you're capable of of providing lols so I think we should we should uh, take the entire compliment Take them all. To apply to both of us. We're a team, Michael. We take collective responsibility for this work. (laughs) We've also had an email from someone called Scott in Australia. We always like it, of course, when people uh, write to us from far-flung places. And this is almost as far-flung as you can get. I'm one of the few listening all the way from Australia, says Scott, and felt inspired. Oh, by the way, uh, it's addressed to the cute one and the funny one. 
which is, I, I think, a little bit of mischief from Scott because we can imagine what he might mean, but we can never prove it. Um, <laughs> I felt inspired to write after listening to the to the episode with winning baker David Atherton. Lovely bit of sort of dead antipodian oh, wit there. Thanks for that, Scott. That's made my day. And hang on quickly, antipodian or antipodian? I don't know. I've been to Australia and you haven't. Shut your mouth. <laughs> um, <laughs> Australia, in fact, no, you're quite right. Antipodean. I took on too much. I, I started the word and I wasn't, I wasn't going anywhere with it. But you got, you got a solid joke in there. A <laughs> good you. eight out of ten. So I think we're fine. In fact, Australia is my favourite country and I, on an almost daily basis, lament the fact that it's no longer possible to go there. Probably shouldn't say your favourite country. You rely on other countries for income as well. It's like in terms of the country I have most affection for in the world. Anyway, uh, which means it fills me with a certain wistfulness to hear from... Scott, but perhaps one day we'll all be in the same room. Uh, Scott's been listening since the beginning and is currently on a similar journey uh, to David, he writes, getting rid of my shame and internalised homophobia. I've been rereading Alan Down's book, The Velvet Rage, that explores this shame and external validation that gay men go through, often with disastrous results. So that's The Velvet Rage. I'm always interested in recommendations for kind of, you know, further reading. Yes, actually, The Velvet Rage is really brilliant. It is a bit dated now as a more up-to-date book by Matthew Todd called Straight Jacket, which is similar. So if you're interested, do read both The Velvet Rage and Straight Jacket. They're both fab. So there you go. Michael has taken your recommendation, rubbished it, and built on it with another one. <laughs> um, your wonderful podcast, Scott goes on, has been a great compliment to the book and my own work exploring masculinity, sexuality, and what it means to be a man in this world. Thank you for the amazing... Uh, amazing? I think I'll go for amazing in the end. Thank you for the amazing range of guests who are also interesting. Each week, I can't wait for the next episode and to discover how bears are built. There you go. That's a long time listener. <laughs> and Scott signs off with kindness from Sydney, which of course we like. We've, uh, that's one of our favoured sign-offs. And then there's a PS, which is always an interesting choice in an email because it could have just got back and put it in the original body of the email, but it's gone for a PS. Um, <laughs> PS, I hope to become a patron or Patreon or whatever soon, but as a poor archaeology student, the budget only stretches so far in a pandemic. There may be true, uh, Scott, but Think of the money you'll pile up when you start excavating Egyptian ruins and stuff like that. Absolute license to print money, the old archaeology game. I don't know if they have Egyptian ruins in Australia. Oh, those guys got everywhere. They'll have some. Oh, I see. Anyway, before we sign off with kindness, we would like to introduce our guest for next week, who is Jess Foster Q. We haven't actually recorded this one yet, but we know Jess will be great. She runs the Hoovering podcast and is the owner, parent... What do you call it? Yeah, the owner of um, of a young boy who I believe is quite the challenge on occasion. I think parent is more traditional, actually, but we'll go with owner. <laughs> Jess is a fantastic stand-up, as many of you will already be aware, and just really funny. Her podcast is great. Oh, we, we love Jess. We love, love, love Jess. She is great. She's, really, I also, she's also a really great person. And as a side note, she is soon performing in Bristol at my old school. So there you go. Jess Foster Q. Look at that. Oh, she's so funny. This will be a treat, I think. But as you say, we're saying this from a position of not having recorded any of this content, so we're completely chancing our arms. Great. Well, we'll see you next week for that. So with kindness, I've been Michael, he's been Mark. I've been Mark, and see you next week for what we imagine will be a really great podcast. <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.